Welcome back to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast, where we're telling the amazing, untold, wacky, weird, and inspiring stories of type 1 diabetics from across the world. I'm your host, Rob Howe, and I wanted to let you know that we now have over 500 years of living with T1D on the podcast, and we're on track to be over 1,000 by the end of the summer, which is pretty exciting. I also wanted to chat about my new email series, Friday T1D Feels, where I send you a personal note no fancy graphics or anything like that, about what I've been thinking about in the world of type 1 diabetes during that week. If you're into that, just go to diabeticsdoingthings.com and sign up. I'd also like to take a minute to talk about hashtag coverage to control. JDRF is raising awareness around the fact that most of us don't get to pick the insulin pumps we have, just the ones our insurance will cover. Just imagine if your cell phone was like that. Except this isn't a phone, it's what keeps us alive. So let your voice be heard and tell your insurance company that T1Ds and their doctors should decide what kind of pumps they use, not the companies. I'm looking at you, Aetna, United Healthcare, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Let's get this right. Okay, enough chatter. Let's get back to the episode. Hello and welcome back to Diabetics Doing Things. Uh, we're telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all over the world. Um, and I'm very, very excited for our episode today because not only uh, do we have an international guest, uh, but we have an exciting diagnosis story as well. So Jeremy Robertson, um, welcome. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Thank you very much for letting me join in. Oh, well, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, we were chatting a bit before we got on the episode, but you're calling from Sydney, Australia. Um, so, you know, right now it's my Friday evening and it's uh, your Saturday morning. Yeah, that's right. It's a beautiful, sunny Saturday here in Sydney. And uh, and, and just because I'm curious and also sort of ignorant to it, uh, it's, it's about to be winter in Australia. Is that correct? Yeah, we've just kicked over into the first couple of weeks of autumn, so it's uh, it's cooling down. But um, the weather's still lovely in Sydney. It's 25 degrees Celsius today. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm sorry, but uh, oh, no, it's a lovely, I, warm, sunny day. It's it's kind of the exact same here uh, in Dallas, except we're just sort of on the other. Uh, we're going the other way because it's going to be really hot here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Great. Okay, so Jeremy. Um, because I, your diagnosis story, when you reached out to me, um, it really stands out for a few reasons. One, because um, of your late sort of adult diagnosis, um, and then yep. two, just because of the like drastic career change. So why don't you just give uh, everyone just a little bit of a background on um, sort of leading up to your diagnosis and uh, sort of who you were before uh, you were diagnosed, because... A lot of people, um, because they're diagnosed so young, don't really remember their life before type 1. So I think your perspective on that um, is going to be really unique. Yeah, okay. okay. I, um, yeah, I definitely have a, a life before diabetes and life after diabetes. Um, so I grew up in Canberra, uh, the capital of Australia, and then I came up to Sydney to go to university. And all I ever wanted to do growing up as a little kid was fly airplanes. And I was very lucky that I had the support to be able to pursue that as a career. And um, and I was also lucky that my timing with the, the cycles of the aviation industry meant that I managed to get a job with Qantas, the, you know, Australia's international airline, uh, at quite a young age. I was 21 when I joined Qantas. And I, I was a, uh, a second officer on the 747 flying all over the world. I used to spend a lot of time in Los Angeles. Um, so the second officer is third in charge of the 747. And then after a few years of doing that, I got promoted to being first officer or co-pilot on 
on the Boeing 767. And again, that was flying uh, internationally around Southeast Asia and the Pacific and doing a lot of domestic flying in Australia. So and, b- before, uh, before we kind of get into, mm. you know, more specifics, I want to just focus on um, the fun part, right? Like talk about flying. So, you know, I'm sure, you know, most of our guests have flown on a commercial passenger airline, but um, what, what kind of like operations go into that? Like, obviously, it's a huge crew of people, both on the ground and in the aircraft. Like, what's what's that like? What's the dynamic? Well, yeah, it's, uh, there's an incredible uh, incredible, I guess, giant machine going on behind every airplane flight, uh, commercial flight. Yeah, as a pilot, my experience was that I would arrive at uh, the Qantas offices an hour or two before my flight was due to depart, and I'd go to, up to the flight planning desk and I'd meet the other pilots. Um, on a 747 flight to Los Angeles, there's generally four pilots on board, and by the time we arrived, uh, the flight planners, there's a dedicated flight planning department, they'd already looked at all of the weather and figured out what the most efficient flight plan between Sydney and Los Angeles was. So we'd be handed a flight plan uh, and all of the weather en route, and we'd look through all of the weather, uh, all of the, the notices for various uh, airports along the way, and we'd figure out if we wanted to add more fuel or if we wanted to fly a slightly different way. And once we'd sorted all of that out, we would take it out to the airplane, and by the time we got to the airplane, generally the passenger boarding was already underway, uh, certainly all the freight and baggage loading was underway. Our fuel order had been communicated to the refuelers, so they were refueling the airplane. So there's all these, you know, all this, this huge number of people that are all making decisions and contributing to getting everything on board the airplane so that you can depart at a set time. Uh, and then again, from the pilot point of view, someone would go outside and walk around the airplane and just basically do a, a last-minute gross error check, make sure there's no glaring problems with the airplane. Um, and you know, an engineer would have done the same thing before the pilot did it. Uh, the pilots inside the flight deck are preparing the, the flight deck and setting up all the systems, the, the navigation computer, uh, all that sort of stuff, getting ready to go. And then it sort of all came together at the last minute. The last passengers would get on. Um, the, the head flight attendant would call us to say everyone was on board. The engineer standing at the nose wheel would ring up and tell us that all the cargo doors were being closed. The refueler would come up and we'd sign for the, the fuel receipt. Um, and, yeah, we'd, we'd all be ready to go and hopefully that would occur on time. And, um, you know, you, sort of, you were always aiming to lock the doors and push back the airplane and start the engines within one or two minutes of your scheduled time. Uh, so, really, as the pilots, we're just a... We're just another cog in, the, in this giant machine that's got all these different components all coming together simultaneously to get a flight departed on time. Uh, so it's pretty amazing to be a part of that. Uh, and then, uh, and then I guess the fun stuff started for me because that's when we went flying. So. Right. Uh, so I mean, like you know, you <laughs> talked about your whole life, uh, you know, wanting to be a pilot. Uh, what what started that? Do you remember? I, I probably blame my father. He was always making model airplanes when I was a little kid, and I think I must have been a bit of a terror around the house because I quite often remember him just getting me out of the house and we'd go out to the airport and sit and watch the airplanes land, and he was always pointing up to the sky. I remember him telling me how to tell if it was a 747 flying over because the shape of the contrails was different to the other airplanes. Um, and growing up in Canberra, Canberra's about a four-hour drive from Sydney where all of our family were. Uh, quite often I'd get stuck on an airplane 
as a little kid to fly up to Sydney to stay with my grandmother for the school holidays. And yeah, that was in the, the late 80s. So you were still allowed up in the flight deck. So as a little kid, I'd always ask to go up and sit in the cockpit and talk to the pilots. And very occasionally, you'd be allowed to stay for the landing. And uh, I think that just all sort of soaked in. And I never I never really thought about it till about halfway through high school. And there's this funny story where I, I failed a career test. Uh, the, the careers advisor had this um, this barrage of 200 questions that you answered in it spat out an answer that uh, that sort of told you what career path you were most suitable to and i wasn't suitable for any career according to that test not one uh, not, not one not one <laughs> not one it, it, it gave you a graph and my graph was this completely flat line at the bottom of the scale um and all it really was was that there was not one question that said do you want to be an airline pilot um and that was i guess that test worked because it focused me and it made me realize that that's actually what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be an airline pilot. Um, so I started making decisions from that point onwards uh, to, to sort of get myself heading in that direction. You know, I changed high schools to one that had aviation subjects. Uh, I convinced my father that it would be good uh, if, he, if he started funding some flying training. So the process of changing schools, I left a, a private school and went to a public school. So I convinced my parents that the money they saved on that, they could spend on flying lessons. Um, and that was a bit of a hard sell, but they agreed eventually. And uh, yeah, when I moved to Sydney to go to university, it was to do an aviation degree, which was designed to produce commercial pilots. So I finished that degree with a commercial pilot's license and all the appropriate ratings. And uh managed to get a job as a flying instructor, first of all, here in Sydney. And then I moved up to, uh, I guess, Australia's equivalent of Alaska. It's the, the remote northwest of Australia. Um, but instead of being freezing cold, it's, uh, it's a tropical region. But like Alaska, it's very remote and it relies heavily on small aeroplanes to get a lot of freight and people and, uh, and tourists around the place. I spent a couple of years up there flying little six-seat Cessnas around, having a great time. And... Uh, yeah, as I said earlier, I was just in the right place at the right time when Qantas was expanding, and I got a job with Qantas. So, I mean, you you really took a a verdict from that test of like no no outlook, and you turned it into a career like almost right away. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess all of that uh, all of that passion was inside me, but I had never had cause for it to be focused into a direction, and that. That test, even though I failed it, uh, you know, obviously had the desired result. But it's all about perspective, right? Um, mm. So you know, because I I'm, I'm talking a lot these days about like zero sum, like no, zero sum games. So like where there's only one outcome, and I think that there's so many outcomes if we just kind of look for it. Um, and it, you know, for your, an, another person may take that test and take it to heart and say, I can't do this, or um, or, you know, what am I going to do? But I think, you know, the outlook to say, well, this test really didn't have anything to do with what I wanted. So I'm just going to do what I want and what I know and how to work that plan. So I think it's really strong. Yeah. So, so now you're flying for Qantas, um, and you're going back and forth, uh, from Australia to the U S to all over the world. I imagine there's some, um, you know, in the, in the, in the far East as well out to China. Cause uh, I flew a Qantas flight, um, when I was out in Asia in 2015. Um, so you're flying all over the world. Um, and then you let, let's get towards your diagnosis, sort of walk us through, uh, you know, as things started to change. 
Hmm. Well, after seven or eight years with Qantas, I uh, I managed to get involved in the flight technical department, which um, they're the part of Qantas that they do a few more interesting things with aeroplanes rather than just flying passengers from A to B. Uh, and I was trained as a maintenance test pilot, which means that every now and then one of the aeroplanes would be taken offline for one of the major inspections and they'd be disassembled and reassembled. And before they were allowed back to flying passengers, they'd have to be test flown. So myself and a captain and an engineer would go up and do a, a three to four hour test flight on the airplane, just running through all the different systems and redundancies to make sure the airplane was safe to go back to passenger flying. Uh, and that was great fun because you got to do all sorts of things in the airplane that you normally would do, like turn engines on and off and turn hydraulic systems on and off and uh, check the stall warning system and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and this really sparked a bit of an interest in test flying. And I didn't have any formal qualifications in test flying. Uh, I was halfway through an engineering degree at the time that I was doing in my spare time. And I discovered that there was a, a test pilot school in uh, Mojave in California. And this was the only civilian test flying school in the world. And they ran this fantastic little two-week introduction to test flying course. So I enrolled myself in that. And in, uh, in February 2010, I was in Los Angeles. I was uh, staying in Riverside on the, the eastern side of Los Angeles, and I was converting my Australian air transport pilot license to an American one. And that's about a, a one-week course. And then I was going to go up to Mojave and start this two-week test flight course. And uh, while I was in Los Angeles, I guess in the week leading up to heading over to Los Angeles, I'd been starting... Uh, I've been noticing in Australia that I was drinking more and more water, uh, but it was the middle of summer, it was 35 degrees here, it was hot, and I'd been really busy, and I just didn't pay much attention to that. But that one week where I was in LA, and it was you know, winter in LA, so it was low 20s, I was still drinking a lot, I was urinating frequently, uh, and I was just starting to feel worse and worse. And by the end of that week, the thing that really twigged me that something was wrong was that my vision went blurry. Uh, you know, I, I wear glasses with a pretty mild correction anyway, but it didn't matter if I was wearing them or not. If I took my glasses off, uh, things were the same amount of blurriness as they were when I was wearing them. And I just thought, yeah, something's not right. So I went off to one of the local uh, medical centers in Riverside and the doctor there, you know, listened to my symptoms tested my blood sugar level and uh, it was, what was it? It was about, it was about 450, I think, in, uh, in your numbers. 25 millimoles per litre is the number I remember, which I think is 450 uh, milligrams per deciliter. Right. So like in, in the US, uh, and it's, I think it's becoming a little bit more popular with like ketogenic diets uh, becoming so popular now, like people start measuring according to millimolars. Um, mm. But right, so about 450. Um, yeah, so five times higher than it should have been, you know. Um, and he looked at me and said, have you just eaten? I said, no, haven't eaten for, you know, four hours since breakfast. And he just said, well, I, I, you know, I think you've got diabetes. Um just sort, of, just sort of casual like that? Yeah. Uh, and I was sitting there because I'd come straight from the flying training school where I was doing my license conversion. So I was sitting there in my pilot's uniform. And he said, I don't, I don't think you should do any more flying while you're here. 
uh, I think, you know, you don't have insurance, you should probably try and get on the next flight back to Australia. And uh, I knew enough about diabetes at that point to know that I probably didn't have type 2 diabetes. This was, this was probably type 1. And uh, in Australia and most countries around the world, type 1 diabetes automatically invalidates your, your, um, your commercial flying medical. So you can't work as a commercial pilot if you've got type 1 diabetes. Uh, so I just had this realisation that everything I'd worked towards professionally for the last 15 years uh, just stopped then and there. And, and right, and I think, you know, without, yeah, there's really no other option. And I think um, for those uh, who have listened to the episode with Neil Greathouse, um who is uh, the Beaties on Instagram? He uh, was a was in the military, the U.S. military, and was a was trained to be a pilot. Um, and that that was the very similar, right? Like he was diagnosed and then instantly moved out of his unit. That's right. I listened to that one, and his the only job available to him was to be a trash collector or something. I right, seem to remember. Right. Yeah, ridiculous. And so um, it's just quite a transition, right? So for you, and I mean, uh, and I think also I want to touch on the fact that you were pretty familiar with the differences between type 1 and type 2, which I don't want to say is, is unusual, but most people I think have a casual maybe um, understanding. What um, Was it just your training or just your understanding of the medical clearance? Yeah, you do do a little bit of medical study as part of your air transport pilot's license um i don't i can't remember if that specifically covers diabetes or not i I have a funny feeling it doesn't i think my knowledge from that was probably more uh from my friends that i made during my undergraduate years i lived on campus at a residential college uh, when i was doing my aviation degree and a couple of my friends were studying medicine uh, and i always found their textbooks interesting and was you know would often leaf through them. So I'm not sure where I picked up that knowledge, but I just remember knowing that yeah, it, it wasn't type two. It was it was more likely to be type one. So you're sitting there in Riverside, California, um, in your pilot's uniform at a you know, at a medical clinic or a local office, whatever it is, three thousand miles plus from home. Um what what goes through your mind? Um, well, I remember the doctor you know, giving me the diagnosis and then giving me a few minutes to myself and I just remember sitting there you know, crying quietly for a while and uh, pulling myself together enough to call my wife. Uh, not, and actually, at that stage, she wasn't my wife. This was, uh, this was six weeks before our wedding. So... So you got a lot going on. So you were right. Yeah, (laughs) you were. Not only were you in the U.S. and training and doing and uh, you know under a lot of stress there, but you're also getting married. So no wonder you didn't notice that you were drinking too much water. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, life was busy. Um, uh, So I rang my my wife, my fiance, and she was just about to head overseas on a big work trip. Uh, We'd sort of timed these things so that we were both going to be overseas at the same time, and we were both going to come back with a couple of weeks to go to tidy everything up before our wedding. Uh, so she she was literally 10 minutes away from getting in the taxi to the airport. Um, so she cancelled her trip and 
Uh, and then I rang the test pilot school and said, this is what's happened, I'm not coming. Uh, and then I rang Qantas and uh, booked myself on the next flight home, which was, I think, the following evening. So that was a Friday lunchtime I got diagnosed and the next flight wasn't until Saturday night. Uh, so I had a day and a half to kill in Los Angeles, yeah, where I knew no one, and um, and to kind of, yeah, just ponder, ponder my life and wonder what I was going to do. Um, so that was a pretty funny 36 hours. I went back to my hotel and checked out the next morning, and I went uh, I went to the Plains of Fame Museum in Chino, and if there's any other aviation enthusiasts out there it's a fantastic museum it's got all these wonderful airplanes and a lot of famous airplanes from the test flying that was done in california in the 50s and 60s uh, so i just remember wandering around looking at all these incredible airplanes that i'd read about and uh, and thinking you know i'm never going to fly anything like this anymore this is a real shame hmm. um, and then yeah hopped on the Qantas flight home and uh i didn't even have a regular doctor back in home in Australia then because I, I was never really sick. Uh, I guess you know, a lot of people in their 20s can relate to that. I didn't have a, a family GP or anything like that. The only regular doctor I saw was my aviation doctor who I saw every 12 months for my flying medical. Uh, so I went and saw him and he sent me off to uh, one of the big research hospitals in Sydney that has a, uh, a diabetes research arm. So I went through the formal process of being diagnosed, you know, antibody testing and all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, it was very clear that I definitely had type 1 diabetes. So I was put in touch with an endocrinologist and a, a diabetes educator and a, a diabetes nurse. And um, I had six months sick leave saved up from, at Qantas because I'd never been sick. Uh, so I just went on sick leave. And um yeah, my wife and I got married, and that was fantastic. And we went on a honeymoon, and that coincided nicely with my diabetes honeymoon. So my insulin requirement dropped to sort of one or two units of long-acting a day. So that was kind of nice. We had a, a couple of weeks in Fiji at a remote little island, and I didn't really need to take any insulin. Oh, that's great. Um, that's and then like the, the real honeymoon alongside, you know, the, yeah, the diabetes the double honeymoon. honeymoon. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's fun. And then, yeah, back to Australia to sort of sort out life. Uh, so I went through the, the process of getting a, a medical discharge from the airline. Um, as I said, I was doing that engineering degree part-time, so I kept doing that, uh, not because I sort of intended on working as an engineer, but more to give myself something to do and something to focus on. And, uh, yeah, just did a lot of thinking about what I wanted to do professionally for the rest of my life because I wasn't going to be able to fly airplanes. And that, um, that's where I realized I'd always, I'd always had an interest in medicine. Uh, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed complex careers. You know, flying was, was a complex, complex job. Um, uh, but the one thing I found lacking in flying was that I didn't, I didn't really feel like I was contributing to society as much as I possibly could. And I think that's where the, the thought of a medical career really kicked in. Um, you know, a medical career is so broad. There are so many, so many different areas you can end up in. I thought, like, I'll start, I'll have a go, and I don't know where I'll end up, but I know that somewhere in there there'll be a niche for me, and I'll find it interesting enough and uh, rewarding enough that I'll, I'll be able to make a, a useful career out of it. So that, that sort of began the process of starting applying for medical school and 
going through entrance exams and interviews and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and when you when you were going through that process, um, obviously, like I think you know, emotionally, um, a lot of people go through maybe like a burnout or you know a, a denial phase or um, you know you know obviously it's a hard situation. Um, but you know what was what were those conversations like even with yourself? Like you know I'm gonna what am I gonna do? Um, you know, what, what do I, I, my first love is, is obviously aviation and I, and now I can't do that. What do I, you know, where do I go from here? Um, talk, talk through some of that, some of those. Yeah. Things. Well, I guess there's sort of two sides to the flying. One was, yes, I certainly couldn't do any professional commercial large aircraft flying. And that was, that was devastating. Absolutely. Uh, and I definitely went through in hindsight, having now learnt more about depression and adjustment disorders and so on, I definitely went through a period of of, um, of some form of depression, and it probably would have been better if I'd gone and sought some help with that. Uh, but um, but I chose not to, and I I I guess I dealt with it by keeping myself busy, and um, I kept myself busy. With, uh, with the engineering degree, I kept myself busy with the diabetes. And I guess I kind of threw myself into the diabetes management. Uh, and there's a, a lot of overlap with the sort of the ongoing thought process you have while you're flying a big airplane to the, the constant thought process you have being a type 1 diabetic. Uh, yeah, flying a big airplane, you're always, you've always got a, a contingency plan in the back of your brain and you always know sort of what the energy state of the airplane is. So you know how much fuel you've got on board, how far you can get with that fuel, where the closest usable aerodromes are if you're going to have an emergency, and you're constantly running sort of mental calculations and updating them as you go. And I guess I just transferred that mindset to managing my diabetes. Uh, you know, I knew how much food I'd eaten, I knew what types of insulin I had on board, how long they were lasting, and um, I always had my little backup plan of various foods and juices available. And I just applied that thought process to managing my diabetes. And uh, I think that, yeah, that kept my brain really busy and gave me something to focus on. Well, um, and it's, it's I, I imagine, much like a flight plan, like, you know, even the best laid plans, like there's still, you know, oftentimes like small adjustments you've got to make throughout that, um, you know, course changes or like you said you know fuel um and pre you know preparing for a long journey um because you know every day is different that's right and i i know everyone listening will be able to relate to just how many different things impact your sugar levels uh and flying's the same there's so many variables that you can't predict uh, and that's why it was you know an interesting and enjoyable career because you're always you know you're always thinking and, and everything's every day is different uh and it's the same with diabetes so yeah you're always you're always ready to react to whatever variable, you know, unforeseen variable gets thrown at you. Uh, so I think, yeah, that that mindset that I had from my flying career has really helped me with my diabetes and certainly helped me early on get things under control pretty quickly. But also I, I came very close to burning out pretty quickly and I remember one of the diabetes uh, nurses that I was seeing on a regular basis just said to me at one point, just you know, just relax a little bit. You know, don't 
don't be so focused on getting your sugars down to that level all the time because you know you're going to stress yourself out so and i think that was that was sage advice uh, very early on um because again you and i all know that you'll do everything right and some days your sugars will just be completely berserk and you have no idea why and if you let that get to you uh, yeah you're going to burn out and so right. i just and had to learn to take a deep breath and yeah, sometimes carry on. <laughs> sometimes it's difficult because you're holding on tight, right? You're looking at that number, yeah, you know, and you want to do right. you want to do well. Um, I think you and I are very similar in that regard. Like, um, especially when I was competing as an athlete, like I wanted to be my best all the time. Um, mm. And some days it just wouldn't happen. And you know, if you're yeah. if you're holding on yeah. too tight, and uh, you can, you know, that sort of self talk, you start being too hard on yourself. And I think that's where you know sometimes it it seems so simple like hey just breathe relax um but you know i i totally identify with yeah sometimes that's maybe not the first instinct uh you know for somebody who's really trying to to uh to i guess accomplish the mission right to to, to... yeah that's right and i think again having a bit of a type a personality you know i, I wasn't going to let diabetes uh cause me any trouble you know i was going to control diabetes not the other way around um so that's that's what I was out to do when I was first diagnosed, and uh, I was probably channeling a lot of my anger into managing my diabetes, um, which yeah maybe that was good, maybe that gave me the motivation to to keep it tightly controlled. But uh, yeah, also the negative of that was I was if I kept going like that, I would probably have burnt out fairly quickly. No, and I think it's a common. Um because it's a common reaction, common response, because you're looking for a way to feel. And of course you're upset. You're going through those, you know, six stages of grief or acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, you go through them, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes a lo- over a long period of time. I specifically would be short with people sometimes who were just asking questions um, because they didn't know, they didn't know any better and they were interested in what was happening to me. And um, for a long time, like I, I remember one interaction in particular, I snapped at one of my teammates, my freshman year of college and, you know, he kind of was taken aback by it. And I ended up, you know, apologizing to him later just because I was trying to beat diabetes. I was trying to not be different. I was trying to not mm. be affected by it. And I think, yeah. you know, it's, it's easy to do as you're going through some of those cycles. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, um, but I guess going back to your original question about, dealing with the post-diagnosis the the big thing that changed was not doing commercial flying but the thing that never changed was that uh, even when I was flying for the airline I still have I've always loved flying little airplanes and I always used to take friends for scenic flights and stuff like that and I was lucky that um, about six months after my diagnosis I managed to uh, restore my my medical to allow me to fly ultralights um, which is airplanes that weigh up to 600 kilograms and only carry two people. So really just fun little airplanes to go flying on a sunny day. So I was very lucky that after a very short period of time, that component of my life sort of went back to normal. If I felt the urge to go for a fly in a little airplane and just uh, you know, do something that I really enjoyed, I could still do that. What was that first, so that, what was that first flight like? Uh, it was just magic. <laughs> just fantastic to get back up in the air and uh, and do something that I loved, and and I guess that gave me a bit of hope. It's like you know, yes, I've lost the big airplane flying, but it's not the end of the world. I can still 
I can still do this little airplane flying and I've always loved this so I, I know I can continue to to love this so I've lost a component of my passion but I haven't lost you know, everything that I'm passionate about so now so now you're um, you know you're you're going to medical school you're um, you know you're working to be uh, working on a new passion something that's you know finding a place to land in a very complex field like you said uh, where you mm. can you know know that you'll have some sort of application um, so now what do you you know as you're channeling your passion and you're really working and maintaining to stay busy what do you what are you hopeful for um, and what do you want to affect as as you now you know go into another phase of your life well, I guess, yeah, life has changed drastically since diagnosis because I'm, I'm married. I've now got two young children. Uh, I completed the medical degree, which was hard work with two young children. But, um, you know, I got an enormous amount of support from my wife and, and our families. Uh, and I guess what I've found happening throughout that whole phase is, uh, is just sharing my story. You know, people are always very interested to find out my background because I've I've come to medicine a lot later in life I'm usually about a decade older than most of the other medical students or junior doctors I work with so they they always ask what I did beforehand um so I guess I'm I'm always happy to talk about my story and talk about type 1 diabetes and I get I use that opportunity to uh yeah, bring people that I get exposed to uh, up to date with what the latest is with type 1 diabetes from a management point of view or a research point of view and um, it's always interesting to find out what what people know and don't know about diabetes and and just yeah to kind of give them an an update on and what's I, happening and i imagine especially in like a medical community it's even more interesting because the you know it, not everybody gets the full education or obviously you're you know there's so many things you can focus on that you know diabetes sometimes isn't even um sort of in that purview um what are some of the responses that you've gotten or um you know maybe ones that surprised you or um you know memorable conversations that you've had about it i guess the the common themes are a lot of people are surprised that i'm on a cgm but i'm not on a pump um and a lot of people are surprised that you can't be a commercial pilot if you've got type 1 diabetes. Um, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of doctors, it's just interesting, like you said, a lot of doctors, the, their level of knowledge of type 1 diabetes varies immensely. And it, it basically comes down to, as you said, what area of medicine you're focusing on. And if you, yeah, if you pursue a direction that just doesn't expose you to people with type 1 diabetes, you just, uh, yeah, you you don't stay up to date. Uh, certainly, certainly not as up to date as someone like you or I, who's you know dealing with it every day. Right, and I think you know it, it's much like someone who doesn't know anyone with type one diabetes or has never had a friend or family member um, asso associated with the disease. Uh, they don't necessarily need to know the difference. They've never been exposed to it. So. Mm. You know, I think it, I think it's it's all about that awareness level. Really depends on your proximity to the material. Yeah, exactly. So I just try and use myself as a little, uh, I guess, a little walking update service for <laughs> for anyone I come across. And I, and I, yeah, and I don't hide the fact that I've got type one diabetes. You know, my Dexcom is always visible on my upper arm, and I usually I usually have a brightly coloured uh, Griff Grip sticker on it. That's a rocket ship or a you know something like that. Um, I let my kids choose which sticker I'm wearing 
uh, from week to week. So that's a bit of fun. So that, that yeah, people always ask, you know, what's that thing on your arm? Uh, and that's just an easy introduction to the whole conversation. Right. It's all. It's it's just a icebreaker almost instantly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's so that's something that I'm trying to do in the medical world. The other the other side of it is the aviation world. And um, right. Cause I, 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 I was I was going to ask because people ask you or they say that they're surprised by Type ones not able to be pilots. Do, do yeah, you... and I just I just explained to them that you know aviation medicine is inherently conservative, and uh, yeah, yes, times are changing because management is so much better these days. But given the conservative nature of the industry, change is happening, but it will take time. And the interesting change that's going on in that space at the moment is that there are four countries in the world that allow private flying with type one diabetes, and there are two countries that allow commercial flying with type one diabetes. Um, so Australia is one of the countries that allows private flying, but doesn't allow commercial flying. And it's, uh, it, it's quite an effort to get your private license back. Uh, it took me three or four years of building up uh, sufficient data on my diabetes management to convince the authority here that I was safe to fly a private pilot, a, a private airplane without a safety pilot, uh, sitting next to me. And I guess what I'm, I'm in this interesting intersection of careers where I have all this commercial aviation knowledge, but I now have a, you know, a smattering of medical knowledge. And it sort of has put me in this ideal position to be someone who can advocate for uh, pushing the boundaries of the restrictions on flying with type 1 diabetes. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to do is follow in the footsteps of a, a wonderful gentleman from the UK by the name of Douglas Cairns. He was a, an Air Force fighter pilot when he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And he has been a, an enormous champion for lifting the restrictions on type 1 diabetes. Uh, he circumnavigated the world in a light aircraft and he set up an organisation called Flying with Diabetes. Um, and... There's a, they've got a website that's just flyingwithdiabetes.com and you can read all about their exploits. Uh, there's quite a number of pilots in the US that are involved with them and they do things like fly pasts at JDRF events and they try and set point-to-point um, -point speed records in light aircraft and when there's more than one pilot, they'll do a formation flight and set a point-to-point -point speed record flying in formation. So they're just using you know, their passion for aviation to, again, yeah, I guess, raise awareness for type 1 diabetes and also push the point that type 1 diabetes need not be something that uh, that limits your ability to fly an aeroplane. So I'm trying to emulate that kind of thing here in Australia. Um, obviously, we have a much smaller population, so I'm in touch with about half a dozen different pilots here in Australia that have type 1 diabetes. And, uh, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just hoping in the future to do a few more of the things that, uh, that Douglas Cairns has done. Um, and in the meantime, I'm, every time I apply for my annual aviation medical, I always ask to have some of the restrictions lifted just to, uh, just to allow me to do more and more uh, flying. And uh, with your now, you know, background in medicine as well as aviation and you're obviously like every year you go back for your exam, like you're, you've had another year of experience. How do those conversations go do, uh, with your, with your medical examiners from a aviation perspective? Are you able to, 
you know, make progress with there? Or is it just sort of, again, a very incremental with the conservative nature of the industry? It's, uh, there is definitely progress, but it is definitely incremental. Um, yeah, I guess now being able to speak fluent doctor, um, I, my, my, my aviation medical doctor is very supportive of what I'm doing and that's excellent. Um, and the, uh, I guess I now just try and use as much medical data to back up my applications to the, the aviation authority here. Uh, so this year I've had some success. They've, they've reduced some of the restrictions around me having insulin uh, when I go flying. So I used to have to wait 90 minutes after administering insulin before I was allowed to go for a flight. I've given them enough data for them to shorten that window to 60 minutes. Uh, I'd love it if I didn't have any restriction at all, but you know that that reduction is is better than nothing, and it's progress. So I'll, I'll just keep working on that. Uh, and this year, for the first time, I've actually asked for a commercial medical for the first time. Um, and Australia is not one of the countries that allows that to happen, but they've indicated that they they will actually consider my application. So I'm in the process of of setting up a, a conference call with two of the senior doctors uh, at the Aviation Authority to to discuss my application. So again, that's progress. You know, Prior to that, it would have just been a blanket no. Um, so I'll be interested to see this year where that progresses to. That's fantastic. I think, you know, I, I didn't even really expect to have that come up in our conversation uh, this early. Like to, to think that, you know, something that you love and obviously have passion for immensely and have had your whole life um, taken away from you um, and then to end up with the choices that you've made and the work that you've done to position yourself to be able to make to, to maybe help someone else and and again maybe get your commercial medical reinstated like uh, the idea of that to me like that's a uh, without all this happening maybe that wouldn't have even been possible yeah, that's exactly right. I think, um, yeah, like I said, I've just ended up in this unique position. Uh, it's not, I think I'm in Australia, I'm certainly the only former commercial pilot now with type 1 diabetes and qualified as a doctor. So that's, that's definitely put me in a unique position to be able to advocate for this kind of stuff. No, it does. And I think, you know, it speaks to your, obviously, you know, passion and dedication and, uh, and character to, you know, even go down, consider going down that path. Um, but again, like very, very, very interesting and, and like, and unique and, uh, and awesome. I think is it, I'm, it's exciting. I'm, I'm very glad, uh, you know, that we're having this conversation and I think that, you know, has the potential. I imagine that there are, you know, the people that you meet in Australia as well as the pilots you talk to in the U S and throughout the world who have very similar, you know, feelings towards aviation as you do. And, you know, to be able to potentially, you know, have even the inkling of the idea that there's hope that they could, you know, get clearance again, you know, what a worthwhile cause. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I'm certainly, you know, keeping the, the pilots that I'm in touch with here in Australia up to date with my progress and and I'm not expecting uh, you know I'm not expecting <laughs> enormous progress in one step I'm if if I am able to get a commercial medical back I'm expecting that it will be 
significantly restricted to you know small aeroplanes with more than one pilot and that kind of stuff. But I, I guess I've kind of got it in my mind as a bit of a five-year project. If I can make incremental steps every year, then um, then I'll be happy. And and that's right. There's I know there's a couple of Australian pilots overseas because you're allowed to fly with type one diabetes commercially in the UK. So there's a couple of Australians over there doing that. Uh, and I know that they would. Yeah, they'd love to come back to Australia if uh, if the rules were changed here eventually. And is that uh, it, that were the the UK you know allowing Type Ones to to fly commercially? Is that because of the work that uh, of the organization and the gentleman you mentioned earlier? Is that, yes, it, yes. That, that's almost directly associated with with their work there in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Flying with Diabetes uh, and Douglas Gans have been a, an enormous champion for that cause and have, uh, yeah, have, have been an enormous influence on the medical authority over there to allow that to happen. That's fantastic. That's very, very cool. And I'm and I definitely going to look up because I haven't you know, been exposed to anything in, with flying, uh, associated with flying with diabetes, but it sounds like Douglas would be you know, another great conversation to have and, you know, potentially, Oh, absolutely. you know, raise more, <laughs> raise more awareness of, you know, the, the journey of, you know, type ones who have, you know, been, you know, restricted and then, you know, with the potential and through that incremental progress to give that kind of joy back to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just looking on his website at the moment, uh, cause there's quite a few pilots in the U S that are involved with him and, uh, he, They've got a Flying with Diabetes USA tour of the East Coast coming up in October this year. So, uh, um, yeah, the website's got his contact details and the, the details for a number of the other pilots that are involved uh, in the US. So I'm sure any of them would be delighted to talk flying and diabetes uh, at any point. Well, you know, it's not something that I thought that I would be delighted to talk about. Yeah, like, <laughs> I just, it, Again, just awareness, you never know. But, yeah, uh, yeah, it's fantastic, and I th- I'm definitely going to you know reach out to them and see uh, you know to have more conversations about it because it's really fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, I guess what I love is that people people have ended up with type one diabetes and they're just using whatever their passion is to to promote type one. And I think that's probably the biggest thing I've taken away from listening to your podcast is all these different people have all these different passions, things that I never would have thought of, but they found a way to use that. To, to be a positive influence uh, in the type one space and it, it's just so inspiring to listen to it's uh, I, I'm consistently uh, I guess taken off guard or um, or just impressed I guess I'm just I'm always impressed with how giving the members of the type one community are to each other um, and just very genuine and uh, it's like, you know, we have this thing in common, this, you know, te- thing that could have been terrible. Um, and uh, for many people is, is devastating initially, but also, you know, continues to have devastating results in their lives. But there is a group of people um, and, you know, a lot of type ones who are doing amazing work, whether on a small scale with something that they're passionate about, whether that's art or fitness and exercise or, you know, aviation or athletics um, or even academics in, med- in the medical field, I think um, it's it's incredible to see how willing the Type One community is to help each other uh, and to help spread those stories. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm definitely. I mean, I'm <laughs> just last week. I, I had a really bad week with my sugars last week. I've been fiddling with my diet, and then 
we had my mother-in-law's 70th birthday party, which, you know, always leads to, parties always lead to bad blood sugars for a couple of days for me. Uh, and then I got sick and that, again, that always makes my sugars unstable. So I'd had this, I just had this really bad week with sugars and I was really, I was feeling really down about it all. And uh, I was driving back from Canberra where I'd been down to see my dad. And I just listened to that last podcast of yours. Um, uh, with, uh, Palom- just, with Paloma. With yeah. Glitter, the, glitter glucose. Glitter. Mm-hmm. Glitter glucose. That's what I was trying to remember. Yeah. And it just made me – it was just what I needed. It was the, the kick in the ass to, to make me feel better about it all and go, yep, it's okay. I've had a bad couple of weeks, but I know all the reasons behind it, so I shouldn't let, my, you shouldn't let it get me down. And, you know – there's all these wonderful people doing all this wonderful stuff and I just got to remember that, yeah, I'm doing all right with my diabetes and and I'm actually doing something useful. You know, I'm out there showing people that I've got type 1 and that it's not slowing me down and uh, and, and that's, you know, good motivation for me if I can be a positive role model for, for other type 1s. Um, yeah, and that, that, yeah, that cheered me up when I got back to Sydney and I was feeling better about it all. So, um I'm glad I'm feeling better about it before we had this podcast because I didn't want to be all doom and gloom (laughs) (laughs) on the phone about it. I always, uh, it's so weird, like right before I do an interview, I always like check my my blood sugar just to make sure, like, you know what, if I'm going to go do this, I want to make sure that I'm not, you know, running low. Some people have, some guests have told me that they felt like they rambled because their blood sugar was low, uh, which is never the case. I think people just are, you know, not necessarily (laughs) used to being interviewed, but um, yeah, it's always that little bit of like, oh, I, you know, I wonder. And uh, I, I even did a, uh, I, I have some improv comedy friends, and I've had a few of them on the podcast. Um, but we did a, a little show. We called it uh, A1C Thinking, which was a pun on some improv term called A to C Thinking. But we all tested our blood sugar at the top of the show. We did like a little 10, yep. 10 12 minute set. And yep. uh, it was just so like nerve wracking to be like, oh, what is it going to be? What is it going to be? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, just all of us laughing it off afterwards. Like, you know, everybody was within range and, and fine. Uh, but just that like brief moment. So, you know, it's got, yeah. it's, it's fun to at least, you know, know that there are other people out there feeling the same way. Yeah, that's right. I'm sitting here watching my Dexcom at the moment and it's it's actually remarkably stable. It's been flatlining at 6.9 for the last hour. What's that? That's 124, hey, 124 that's, milligrams. That's, so that's, yeah, that's perfect. I'm pretty happy, yeah, yeah. And actually on that, I'm, I'm very lucky at the moment. One of the other junior doctors I work with also has type 1. Um, so we're often bouncing numbers off each other and, laughing yeah when some of the other when, yeah, some of the nurses bring in cupcakes or something like that we'll make jokes about how much we should or shouldn't eat or how much insulin we're going to need and it's um yeah it's kind of nice to have someone at work to bounce that yeah the type one jokes off it, it changes so much i i had no idea yeah. what i had been missing out on because um, for a, a long period of my life it just just by happenstance really i didn't have any type one friends nearby um and mm. i wasn't I wasn't hiding my type one, but I was, you know, just not calling it any attention to it. And then now that I have, you know, interactions, I can get on Instagram and see a million people's blood sugars, or I can (laughs) text my friends and, you know, just check in if I'm having a bad blood sugar day. Like the, like the difference that that has made just, just from like an attitude or, uh, you know, in a feeling is, is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. I've, I've never known anyone with type one diabetes, um, and 
you know, this chap that I work with at the moment, we went through med school together, so it was nice to have someone else in my class. But apart from him, I haven't really known anyone. Uh, but I've, I guess I've built my own little circle of type 1 diabetics through getting in touch with other pilots with type 1. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's where I've built up my little, my little support network, I guess. It's, uh, it's good to be able to email those guys and just uh, talk about how they manage it with their flying and Oh, I'm, and I'm sure good that, days and bad days. And, I'm yeah. sure they've just been dying to have those conversations with people um, as well. So it's it's always it's always cool to have that you know that sort of itch scratched. You know to have yeah. you know, like oh I, there is somebody like me. So um, I know you listen to the podcast, so you know what question I'm about to ask you. Um, if there's one thing you would tell someone, or even you know a pilot or someone who was diagnosed late in life, or just anyone living with with diabetes, if the one thing that you could tell them, what would it be? I would say that um, that it's all going to be okay in the long run. Uh, it's you know there's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be times where you wish you could pick up diabetes and throw it out the window, uh, and then there's going to be other times when diabetes is behaving itself. Uh, but it's going to be all right. You know, it's a learning curve, but you you just keep learning and just yeah, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Don't let it get you down. Uh, lean on those around you learn as much as you can and and you'll get a handle on it you know you will find the best way for you to manage your diabetes uh, because everyone's different and and you'll get to that stage and it will be okay i think that's that's what i would say to anyone with type 1 that's either newly diagnosed or struggling you know it, it'll be all right in the long run just keep chipping away at it and keep asking for help Definitely, and and um, and it will be okay. Uh, and and you know, I think as you know, by reaching out, um, you can you can have great conversations, and you know, meet people that are totally willing to talk. And um, and I just you know, empathize even, just say, hey, yeah, I'm having a rough week of sugars myself. Yeah, that's right. And even just to get some different ideas, you know, I'm like I said earlier, I'm experimenting with my diet at the moment. I'm trying to just minimize my carbohydrate intake and rely a bit more on proteins and fats and uh it's it's caused some instability but it's i can see that it's going in the direction i want and it's been great to be able to get online and yeah look at a bunch of resources and uh and just listen to other people's tales of doing the same sort of stuff and go oh yeah i can see that'll work for me i'll use that or okay that that tactic i know that's not going to work for me i'll ignore that um rather than just trying to figure it out yourself and it's, yeah. it's it's so funny, right? Like I uh, I just finished my sixth Whole30, and I um, I'm always pretty vocal about um, my success with Whole30, but like very similar, right? Not eating very many carbs. Yeah. Like the only carbs yeah. I really eat are like potatoes, sweet potatoes. But you know, going online and, and looking at uh, the and and looking at the results from different people, but also just knowing how you feel. Um, I always knew, and I said really from the time I was probably like 20, 21, I was like, yeah, you know, I'll, at some point in my life, I'll probably like, you know, only eat vegetables and maybe some meat or whatever. And, and then, you know, before you know it, you look up in your mid to late twenties and you're like, wow, I should probably, uh, start looking at that. <laughs> like, you don't want to admit, you don't, you don't want to admit that your metabolism is slowing down or that you're getting older, but yeah. you're like, you know what, maybe I should start taking this more seriously. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of right there with you. I'm uh, I'm I'm eating very healthy. I was even having a conversation 
the other day and it's like you know what um i don't even want a cheat meal because i know i'm not going to feel good afterwards um and you know that's just such a weird uh mental headspace to be in as an adult you're like wow i really am like getting older i'm really I'm, yeah i'm, I'm not finally I'm, growing I'm, up i'm growing more mature <laughs> look look at me go yeah yeah i failed at that last week someone brought in some rocky road to work and i thought i know that if i have that it's just going to stuff up my sugars for the rest of the day and then i thought i'll oh, bugger it i'll have some and it did and i just thought no i <laughs> i felt terrible for the rest of the day it's my own fault. And you know what? For every once in a while, for Rocky Road, uh, you know, I, I, it's a worthwhile cause. That's for sure. Yep, yep. I don't eat it very often, but uh, it is nice. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for uh, for reaching out. Um, what a fantastic uh, perspective that you that you have on everything. I think you know, with so many different um, you know emotions that people go through all the time. You know, having to change careers, having taken your passion away from you. And just you know, looking at it with a such a fre- with a fresh set of eyes, and like really changing the way um, that you approach those things. It's been an awesome time talking to you, and it's been great to meet you. Well, likewise, it's uh, it's it's an interesting experience talking to you now after listening to your voice for so many hours as I drive to and from work. Uh, I feel like I know you very well, but of course we've only just met. So, no, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Well, uh, if our guests want to get in touch with you um, or want to reach out, um, is there a place online? I know you reached out via email, uh, but like uh, website, Instagram, you know, whatever. Where can they uh, reach out and get in touch? Yeah, um, get in touch is probably easiest via email. Uh, my email is jr568 at gmx.com. And, uh, and I'm on Instagram. I don't have a huge number of photos on there, and I it's basically just photos of me going flying uh, but if you want to look at some photos of me flying little airplanes i'm just on there as a type one pilot so yeah if you type that in i should pop up perfect well um we'll definitely include links to all those in the show notes um and jeremy thanks so much again for uh for spending your morning uh chatting and um you know what I'm, i look forward to future conversations so um, yeah you know. absolutely if you're ever in sydney we'll go for a scenic flight we'll go and hey uh well if, if that's what's waiting for me in sydney that's uh that's a whole <laughs> lot more incentive to go i'd love to absolutely all right thank you very much for having me on rob it's been it's been great fun thanks for listening to diabetics doing things subscribe to our newsletter for weekly emails and behind the scenes content and if you or someone you know has an amazing story to share send an email to rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com.